Tabor. I appreciate the prayer. And I am glad that God answers And you know, and your son's saying thanks, Dad, for praying. That's a, that, was, that was pretty significant. Well, we are in the Psalms for the summer, and today we come to Psalm 102. And it is an interesting psalm. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 103. And that's where we'll be next week. Um, this is a very difficult psalm. Uh, I started on this probably uh, Monday. Work, started working on this on Monday, if you wonder how my schedule works <laughs> out. I do two things during the summer. Um, as far as work is concerned, one is I do the Sunday school class. And I try to start that very early in the week. Uh, a little bit on Monday, I read through the psalm and take notes in my mind and just for my observations. And then on Tuesdays, I start working on commentaries, things like that. And that usually takes two or three days, two, usually two days. It's like a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And then uh, after I've gotten all my insights and everything that I think makes sense to me, I start uh, taking notes. Usually Thursday, and I do an outline on Friday, and try to have it written out by Friday night. So this week I actually had it written out on Friday night and all ready to go. And then Saturday I review it three or four times, and then again on Sunday morning. And then uh, the rest of the week I'm, I'm doing research and writing on a book. So that's what I do in the summer. So this was a very difficult psalm when I read it, because last week I really thought it was a psalm written by David, and the reason I think that is because I thought that was because Psalm 101, you'll see the superscription is called a Psalm of David, and Psalm 103 is also called a Psalm of David. And I'm sure those who compiled the Psalms and put them in a certain order and arranged them uh, the way we have in the Bible thought that's right where Psalm 102 is. It fits between that, it should be a Psalm of David. But uh, when we read the Psalm, we're going to see that there are historical events mentioned in the psalm that don't fit into the context of David's life. For example, a large section of the psalm deals with uh, the city of Jerusalem in, Jerus in ruins. It's been attacked. And it's, it's, it's crumbled. That doesn't happen until the Babylonian captivity, long time after King David. So what we think is that part of this psalm, which is a lament, a lament means a complaint. Part of the psalm is an individual is complaining about his lot in life. And then suddenly it switches and it talks about the city of Jerusalem in ruins. So we think that two people have written the psalm. Part of the psalm is written by somebody who is physically ill and complaining, maybe like King Hezekiah. And then another part of the psalm was written by somebody who is talking about Jerusalem being in ruins and how God is going to deliver it from the Babylonian captivity. Somebody like Jeremiah. So we think that there are the two writings, and somewhere along the line, they were put together and formed into Psalm 102 and became a song for Israel to sing. I mean, worship after the Babylonian captivity. Now, that's what most scholars think. I think that's probably, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that when you see the structure of the psalm, as we go through it verse by verse, it'll sort of support that hypothesis, okay? 
So first of all, let's look at this personal lament or complaint. And uh, it starts off with this plea, this cry for help. Beg, this person begs for help, whoever writes this portion. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. So there is a beg for help. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Now, those of you who have been with us recognize verse 1 is a parallelism, which is a form of uh, Hebrew poetry. If you're just here for the first time, that's what this is. So what does that mean? It's a parallelism. That means line 1, hear my prayer, O Lord, and line 2, let my cry come to you, basically say the same thing. They are parallel sentences. Now, there are three kinds of parallels in Hebrew. There's an identical parallel. That's where line one and line two say the same thing, but just use different words. But they mean the same thing. That's what this is. There's also an identical parallel that's a positive and a negative. You're going to see that in here as well. That's where in the first sentence, the person says something in a positive way. And in the second line, he says something in a negative way, but it means exactly the same thing. Speaking positively and negatively. <coughs> then there are parallels that say, it's called parallelism, it's parallelism of the opposite, where line one says one thing and line two says something totally different. And then there are parallelism where line one says one thing and line two advances the argument a little bit. So I just want you to recognize what a parallelism is. And this is a parallelism, okay? So what we have is this person is facing a crisis. And this, this is a plea. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And let my cry come to you. Uh, obviously, he is, God's not answering his prayers. And so he's having to cry out and demand. He makes a command. God will hear his prayers. And then look at verse 2. He says, again, notice the parallelism. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Don't turn your back on me. So you hide your face means you're turning your back on somebody. Don't turn your back on me. Uh, what's wrong with him? He says he is facing trouble. Do you see that? We're going to discover that things aren't good in this guy's life. So notice line one of verse two. Notice that's a negative. Do you see that? Do not hide your face from me in the day of trouble. Now look at line number two. It's a positive. Incline your ear to me. Do you see that? Both say the same thing, one in a positive way, one in a negative way. Does that make sense to you? Does everyone know what a parallelism is? I'm not going to point them out the rest of the time, but you're going to see there are several of those in the psalm. Okay? So if I were in a class of students teaching them how to preach through the psalms, we would spend a lot of time on this and really develop that and show them all kinds of examples and so on and so forth. Now look at the rest of verse 2. He says this. In the day that I call, answer me how? Quickly, speedily, uh, immediately. So, we know that he's turned his back, God's turned his back on him, he's been pleading with God, God has not listened to him, and finally he says, look, things are getting so bad, I need an answer now. So this is an urgent plea, right? Things are so bad that God has to answer quickly now, he cannot wait another day. What's the reason for the urgent plea? First of all, 
his physical condition. Look at verse 3. Because, for, here's why you need to answer me speedily, verse 3, for my days are consumed like smoke. That basically means my life is ebbing away. <laughs> my life is going up in smoke. <laughs> uh, well, what's smoke like? Well, you see it and then you don't. It's here one minute, it's gone the next. His life is closing in on him and coming to an end. Look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. And my bones are burned like a hearth. That means his bones are brittle. It's like a piece of wood that's charred by the fire in the fireplace. You ever put a log in your fireplace and it burns and then it gets dark and it burns? It might not get down to ashes, but guess what it is? It's charred. And when you look at it, it's dry. The piece of wood is totally dried up. It's all black and it's dried up. It's not good for anything anymore. And that's how he sees his life. His life is falling apart. His life is brittle. This is his lament. This is his complaint. I'm in trouble. I need your help and I need it now. So that's the reason for the urgent plea. He has a physical condition. Okay? But not only that, he has emotional problems. Look at verse 4. My heart is stricken and withered like grass. Uh, he's emotionally bankrupt. He's weary. He's tired. He's, he's, uh, today we'd say he's in a state of clinical depression. If you've ever been in a state of depression, you know it's bad. Right? Some people get to the state of depression where they have thoughts of suicide. If you've ever been in that condition, you know what I'm talking about. I one time in my life thought about suicide. I don't know if I've ever told Linda, but one, once in my life I thought about suicide. It's when I worked, was working at Criswell College the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just burned out. I'd come here, you know, I, would, I had never taught in college. I had to prepare all these classes. I would get up. I was having to work four days a week. We worked from, you know, morning to evening, four days a week, and I had to prepare all these classes, new classes, and I would work until 2 o'clock in the morning preparing classes, and, you know, get up at 6 o'clock, get ready for school, because school met in those days, like at 7.30. And so I'd get about four and a half hours of sleep, and I was finally just burnt out, and I was ready to quit. And I, I, I think I, I just started thinking, this is ridiculous. And I think I actually thought, it'd be just good to end it. You know, that's how, that would be a relief. And that's what this guy is. He is in a state of, of depression, and he's wearied, and he's tired, and he just can't go. He doesn't feel like he can go on another day. How bad is it? Look at the end of verse 4. It's so bad, he says, that I forget to eat my bread. What does that mean? He has a loss of appetite. Now, you know you're depressed when you don't want to eat. And especially if this is a king, like maybe like a King David or a King Hezekiah, who you normally eat good, you know. When you don't want to eat, you know that you have a problem, a mental problem, an emotional problem. And so he has a physical problem and he has an emotional problem. Verse 5. Because of the sound of my agony. Notice he's in great agony. He's groaning. You see that? He's groaning. He's, he's in so much pain he just doesn't physical and emotional pain he just doesn't want to eat because of his groaning. And then look what it says in verse 5. My bones cling to my skin. 
this shows you he's been in a state of physical sickness for a long time because he's down to skin and bones. Do you see that? If you had somebody come in and say, how would you describe that person? They would say, he looks like a person that's been in a Nazi concentration camp for years. Skin and bones looks like a skeleton. The person who's writing this is writing this, and this is his state of being. Then he compares himself to something. I like this in verse 6. He says this, I am like a pelican. Is that a fat bird? I'm like a pelican. Look at this. I'm like a pelican where? In the wilderness. I am like an owl in the desert. Now notice the words like. These are similes. He's describing himself like, he says, I'm like two different birds. Like a pelican and like an owl. Where are they? In the wilderness, in the desert. They are in places outside their normal environment. Desert and wilderness are places of isolation. What he's saying is, I feel isolated. Once heard Billy Graham preach an evangelistic sermon on verse 6. First part of verse, verse 6 where he says this, I am like a pelican in the wilderness. You know what the theme of his sermon was? Loneliness. One of his famous sermons, he probably preached it a hundred times in his crusades. And it's a loneliness, and he talked about the lone, what, what is different kinds of loneliness. He said, you know, you can be lonely in a crowd. Remember? You ever hear Billy Graham talk about that? You can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely because somebody's abandoned you. He talked about Jesus being lonely on the cross. And then as he came to the end of his sermon, he said, you can be lonely in the decision you have to make for Jesus Christ. He gave that invitation. He said, no one may come with you. You may have to come alone. Loneliness was his sermon. He would preach that word, loneliness, over and over again. So I took Billy Graham's sermon when I was an evangelist. And I basically reworked it, and I had a sermon called Loneliness. And uh, it was based on that text right there, Loneliness. So he is in a state of loneliness. He feels like he's been abandoned. No one's around him. No one's supporting him. Does that make sense? Look at verse 7. Very interesting how he describes himself here. He says, I lie awake, and I am like a sparrow, alone. You see that? On a housetop. <coughs> I lie awake. I'm like a sparrow, alone, on a housetop. Now the sparrow, if it's awake, he's talking about at night. Now where should a sparrow be at night? It should be in its nest with its family, with its kids. And being comforted and warm and sleep. He says, no, I'm like a sparrow that's on a rooftop, out of his element. And he says, I can't sleep at night. Have you ever been in such physical pain and emotional pain, stress? You can't sleep at night? That's the state that he is in, not sleep at night. So this plea is, Lord, answer me quickly, because it's an urgent plea, because of his physical condition and because of his emotional condition. But also, it's an urgent plea because of his enemies. His enemies, now that he's down and sick, guess what they do? They, give it, they, kick, him. <laughs> they kick him while he's down. So look at verse 8. My enemies reproach me all day long. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, 
he says he, he, he's, he's awake at night in verse 7, but during, in verse 8, he talks about all day long. Now he's talking about the daylight. So he can't sleep at night, and so he's awake, worrying. And what happens when, he, when, when the sun comes up? Guess what? His enemies are there, always taunting him. See? Verse 8, my enemies reproach me all day long, nonstop. Those who deride me swear an oath against my name. Uh, that means they curse his name. They ridicule him. They taunt him. They say, where is your God now? You know, all this kind of stuff. These are his enemies that are basically uh, against him and deriding him. Why do they do that? Why do they pile on against this probably king? Uh, look at verse 9. Because, see, here's why they do it. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. This is actually a quote from Lamentations. Look at Lamentations chapter 3. And uh, he's speaking in, in metaphoric terms, but this is his diet. He says, you know, I've lost my appetite, but I'm still eating. Let me tell you what I'm eating. The food I eat is ashes. And uh, what I drink is my tears. See, so... He is in a terrible state, and this is his complaint. And while he's down and out, his, his enemies are just punching at him. See, they don't give up. They've got him down, and they're going to keep him down. They're probably going to try to force him, out, force him out of office. And then verse 10 says, because, this is sort of the second reason why they beat on him, because, now watch, look what he says, because of your indignation. See, now he looks, points to God. Because of your indignation, and your wrath. Now he's blaming God. He said, you're the one that put me in here. You're punishing me. You're pouring your wrath out upon me. And as a result, they're now taunting me. Because you got me down and I can't get up. And so they're taking advantage of that. And then the end of verse 10 he says, because you've, you have lifted me up. And guess what else you've done? You've cast me down. So he realizes that this these troubles that he has from physical, emotional, and his enemies are caused by God. And he's experiencing God's wrath and indignation. Probably because of some sin in his life. And uh, he admits that before God lifted him way up. Maybe raised him up to be a king, set him on the throne. But then what's God done? Cast him down. You know, the higher you up, the higher you're up, <laughs> the further it is when you hit bottom. It hurts a lot more than if you just, if I just fall from this platform, that's one thing. But if I were standing on the roof and fell down, that's another thing. It's like a tornado comes. You know, it's one thing the tornado hits a house. How about the tornado gets you and throws you 300 feet up in the air and then drops you down? I mean, you're really, you're really hurting. And God is the one that has put him on his back. And great has been the fall. And his enemies are taking advantage of that. So he makes a conclusion here in verse 11. He says, My days are like a shadow that lengthens. It's like a, a sunset. The day's almost over. Uh, darkness is about to fall. And I wither, into verse 11, and I wither like the grass. 
I'm about to die. <clears throat> so this is his situation. A personal limit. But he has hope. I want you to know, he does, he's not planning on dying. He's planning on being revived. How do I know that? Because what? Because he's praying to God. <laughs> he hasn't given up. In fact, he said, God, how, how fast must you answer me? Quickly. He hasn't given up. He's still got hope. In fact, look how he addresses God in verse 1. For those of you who have been with us, you'll recognize the structure of those letters. Hear my prayer, O what? Oh, all caps. You see that? He's talking to this God who has made an agreement, a covenant with Israel, and said, I will always be showing mercy on you, you know, and if you fall and you've committed sins, if you repent, you know, I will raise you up. And he, there's sort of an indication that maybe he is repentant at this point because of that reference to ashes. <coughs> Dust cloth and ashes. It's possible that he is repenting and he's now saying, God, I am repenting. This is my lot in life. I recognize that it's your wrath that's put me here. And you're angry with me, and I'm repenting. And uh, this this is why Bible Old Testament Bible scholars list Psalm 102 as the fifth of seven penitential psalms. Now, what is a penitential psalm? It's not one that you read when you're in the penitential. <laughs> penitential psalm is a psalm where the writer is penitent over his sin. So this, and that's how that. The psalm is characterized as a penitential psalm, but I see it even more as a psalm of lament. But notice he calls God L-O-R-D, all caps, which is the word Yahweh or Jehovah, and that's a God who shows mercy and compassion. Now look at verse 12. So that's his state. He's right at the end of his life, and if God doesn't intervene, he's going to die. Now look at verse 12. We come to a new section. And you'll see a switch. And we know it's a new section because notice in verse 12, the word Lord is used again. You see? The word Lord opens the first section. In verse 12, the word Lord opens the second section. So here's what he says. I'm about ready to die, but you, O Jehovah, shall endure for how long? Forever. He realizes that God is ever available, ever ready for his people now and in the future. And so he realizes, he makes this contrast between him and God. I'm at the end of my road, but you will endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. And we're still talking about God, aren't we? We're talking about not just God in the general sense. We're not talking about God in the sense that, let's say, Muslims talk about God. Or you know, other Hindus talk about God. We're talking about God as the covenant God, the Lord, who entered into an agreement and he delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage and he formed a people called the nation of Israel and he's intervened in their lives since then. And we're still talking about this God. His name is being mentioned for generations. How many generations? All generations. All the way to the end of time. Now look at verse 13. Because now we move from the man's personal problems to the nation. You will arise and have mercy on who? Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Okay? 
So he's saying, he's, and this, he's making this with confidence, you will arise and have mercy on Zion. Notice, you will arise. That means God has been sitting down for a while. And Jerusalem is going through a lot of problems. But he has this confidence that God's going to get up and he's going to revive Jerusalem. See, verse 13. You'll have mercy on Jerusalem. You know about the word mercy, don't you? That's one of those covenant words. It means compassion. Loving compassion on Jerusalem. Now, why will he do that? Look at right in the middle of verse 13. For the time to favor her, yes, look at this, the set time has come. And this is why we say this is describing the Babylonian captivity. When the Babylonians came down and captured Jerusalem and basically destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, God set a time for that to last. And Jerusalem and his people would be in captivity for 70 years. And guess what's happening? The time is just about up. And now, based on Jeremiah's prophecies and Jeremiah 25 and others, he knows that God is about to rise up and have mercy on his people. That's why we believe probably Jeremiah probably wrote this little section right in here. We're not sure on that, but that's a possibility. Now look at verse 14. Why is God going to do it? Because your servants take pleasure in her stones. The people, God's people, still love Jerusalem, even, even if they are, the city is in ruins, and the stones of the temple have been knocked down. The people love Jerusalem, and God's going to restore them to Jerusalem. He's going to answer because of their love for this capital city. And notice what else they do. Your servants take pleasure in her stones, verse 14, and they show favor to her what? Or dust. They love Jerusalem. Hey, you don't love America as much as you've been when you're outside of America. And you come home and people say, I could just do what? Bend down and kiss the ground. And that's how these people feel about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is holy dust, holy ground. And God's going to restore them. And they love this, this ground under their feet. Reminds me of uh, Gone with the Wind. Remember Scarlet? Now that last scene is. You know, Rhett has left her. So what's she going to do? Suddenly a scene goes back to her mind. She remembers her father who says, you know, the land, that's all that matters. Tara, that's all that matters. You know. That will last forever. And then she sees another scene in her mind. And she sees a sign of Rhett when they were passionately in love. And he says, Oh, you'll always love Tara more than you'll love me. That's all that counts. And then it comes back to reality. And she says, oh, what am I going to do? And suddenly another scene comes. And you see this great big tree. <laughs> and the sun setting. And she says, Tara, Tara, I'll go back to Tara. And then I'll get Rhett back. Tomorrow I'll be another day. She loves Tara. She loves the ground. That's what matters. See, this is holy ground, and, and the Jewish people love this Jerusalem. And God is going to not going to leave them scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, but He's going to bring 
a portion of those, those who love the land, some don't, but those who love the land, he's going to bring them that remnant back and he's going to restore Jerusalem. And we know that he will do that under Nehemiah and all those guys who are going to come back. You know that story. So uh, God is going to be faithful to his covenant with the people. He's going to show mercy upon them uh, because he loves his covenant and they love his land. Now look at the result of this restoration. Look at verse 15. And so the nations shall fear the name of the Lord. Because he's going to destroy Babylon. God's going to do it. It's not going to be any sands or bots are going to know who did it. It was going to be God who did it. People are going to come back. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth. Your glory, your presence in that land. For the Lord shall build up Jerusalem. He shall appear in his glory. Notice these he shalls. Do you see that? This is all prophecy. He shall regard the prayers of the desolate and shall not despise their prayers. There's a positive and a negative right there, by the way. He shall regard the prayers of the desolate and shall not despise their prayer. Notice that the prayers are linked to the restoration of the land. Do you see that? God will answer the prayers of his people and he'll come to their rescue. Now what has the guy in verses 1 through 11 done? What's he been doing? He's been praying. God's going to restore the land. Do you think he might restore his life, his health, his possibility? So prayer is linked there to the restoration of the land. Now look at verse 18. This will be written, in other words, when God comes back and restores the land and the nations fear God, this will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary from heaven. The Lord viewed the earth. Why does he look down? Here it is. You hear the groaning of what? You know, the prisoners. See, they are in captivity. And they have been groaning. They've been praying. And God has looked down and he's heard the groaning of the prisoners. Look at this. Middle, end of verse 20. He's looked down from heaven to view the earth to what? To release. Do you see that? To release those appointed to death. They're on death row. They're captive of Babylon. And God is going to release these captivity. Same thing that Jesus says, by the way, when he steps on the scene. And he goes, his first message is in the synagogue of Capernaum. And he says, he quotes Isaiah. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's come. And he's called me to uh, preach the gospel to the poor and to set the what? Captives free. So you see how Jesus basically <coughs> carries on this ministry. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. This is after he releases them. That's what he expects them to do, to declare his name and to praise uh, him in Jerusalem when they are restored to the truth. When is this going to happen? When the people are gathered together, and guess what? Look at this. And the kingdoms, plural, serve Yahweh. You see that? Jehovah. So, even though the Jews will be restored, 
to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity. When that happens, do all the nations serve God at that point? Does that happen? Does everybody suddenly fall down? Hey, we worship God. We worship. Is that what the nations do? No, they don't do that, do they? So this points to a future time, a prophetic time, when the kingdom of God is established on the earth. And when that happens, all the nations will gather and they will worship the Lord in verse 22. So that deals with the nation. Now watch this. We go right back to the sign of trouble. Right back to the individuals of trouble. This is why we think probably verses 1 through 11 and then these later verses were together and the other was put in the middle. It was right back to the psalmist. Okay? Now look at verse 23. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. So he goes back and says, God's responsible for all, all my troubles. I said, oh God, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. I'm in the middle of my life. Don't kill me now. You know anybody, any king that did that? Cried out when he was ready to die in the middle of his life because God was punishing him. And he cried out and said, oh, Lord, don't kill me now. Do you know any king that said that? King Hezekiah said that. And God gave him another 15 years to live. So this is possible that this is from King Hezekiah. We're just not sure. In the midst of my days. Look at verse 24. Your years are throughout all generations. So give me some extra time. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. Now watch this. He's going to now talk about God. You laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Heavens and earth God created. They, heaven and earth, will perish. But you will endure. You are the eternal one. Yes, they, that's heaven and earth, will all grow old like a garment. Is our solar system and our earth growing old like a garment? Things happening on earth and earth real good? Yes, they are. But watch this. Like a cloak, you will what? You will change them. You're going to transform heaven and earth. And they will be changed. There's coming a day when God is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth He's going to transform the present heaven and earth. And when he does, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. And guess what? All the nations of the world will worship him. But you are the same. They might change, but you're the same. And your years will have no end. Now I'm going to read this last verse, but I want you to pay especially attention to verses 25 through 27. Okay? Here's the last verses. The children of your servants, as God's people, people by faith, will continue. We will continue right on. Throughout eternity. Heaven on earth. And their descendants will be established before you. So here's this end game that he describes. God keeping his faithful covenant and indeed transforming not only people, but heaven and earth. Now look at verses 25 through 27. He says this. <coughs> of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, 
They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you're the same, and your years will have no end. Those verses are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. So I want you to turn there, and this is how we're going to close out the, the teaching today. Hebrews chapter 1. I'll show you how the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage. It's found in Hebrews chapter 1. Now Hebrews chapter 1, as you know, is that important chapter where he says, you know, God has spoken through various ways in times past, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. Remember that? That's Jesus. That's verses 1 through 4. And then he says, Jesus is greater than the angels. He never called any of these angels his sons. And then when you go down to verse 10, it says this. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garden. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fall. So notice what he's doing. The writer of Hebrews is taking that message that was written in the Old Testament and he's applying it to Christians in the New Testament. Jesus Christ now is the one who is speaking and representing God the Father. And he's the one who's going to make all things new. And all the nations are going to come in when the new heavens and the new earth are transformed. And Jesus is now sitting on the throne new throne of David, and he reigns forever and ever. So what we have here is we have this Psalm 102, according to the New Testament church, is a messianic psalm. And it not only has historical significance back in the 7th century, but it also has significance for us and into the future when God sets up his kingdom on earth. And all children by faith be part of that kingdom going to be a world without end. And so that's where we'll stop right there. Next week we'll pick up with Solomon. This is the bedrock of Christian theology. We're going to have a kingdom and we're going to be part of it. Lord, we thank you that you're a great God who's faithful. You keep your promises. You're not a man that you should lie. Your yes is a yes. Your no is a no. We never have to figure out what you mean. You've entered into an agreement. If we keep our end, you keep your end. And Lord, you promise us that one day you will restore this world back to its pristine glory. Paradise lost will be paradise found. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. A kingdom without end. And we'll be part of it. Healed totally. Without emotional fractures, without physical fractures, without enemies. Peace on earth in the kingdom of Jesus Christ being king. Oh, Lord, help us to keep that ever in our mind. Help us to have that in our focus. This is the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.